Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. The title of the sermon this morning is The Law of Liberty, and we're going to open up our Bibles, Lord willing, to three places. James chapter 2, Exodus chapter 20, and John chapter 14. The first place that we'll open to as we talk about the law of liberty is James chapter 2. And as you open your Bible, I wonder if we open our Bibles sometimes the same way we walk into a restaurant and order our food. Let's say after church, you're going to go out for tacos. Let's say you go to Taco Bell, Qdoba, Chipotle, which are all three exactly the same to me, which annoys the person I live with to no end. She, she's like, you're just saying that to annoy me. Really, you don't think that Qdoba is the same as Chipotle, the same as Taco Bell? I'm like, yeah, they're all exactly the same. They, they taste okay. So uh, let's say you walked in to, you know, and when you walk into order, this is what you do. You stand there and you go, um, give me, uh, now, right off the bat, don't do that. Don't say gimme. Did your parents not teach you anything? You say, may I please have. But you walk in there, you're like, give me uh, number three and with uh, pork and with chicken and no sour cream. And you just like point out, you do want this, but you don't want that. And you do want this and you don't want that. I wonder if sometimes when we open our Bibles, we're not going to say to God, uh, give me this verse, but not that verse. But I wonder if sometimes we open it with the same attitude. Three little words, individualism, pragmatism, emotionalism. I wonder first if sometimes when we open our Bibles, we're just stuck on individualism. An individualism that says everything revolves around me and my preferences. Anyone who has a smartphone or anyone who has a Google uh, account knows what it means to get curated suggestions. So I'm out on my jog, and I just tell Spotify, play me the next song that you think I might like. And I just get to hear all of this new music, and it's usually correct that I'll like the next thing that it suggests because it's all curated based on what I've liked or disliked in the past. I wonder if this individualism makes us comfortable grabbing a hold of some things in the Bible and leaving some things in the Bible aside. It's been said that God gave us 10 commandments, but now that we're all used to having things our way when we shop on Amazon, most of us are like, well, God, I'll take six of them and two of them maybe later and two of them not at all. Individualism. And with individualism is married a sort of spirit of pragmatism, which means that immediately we make a judgment, I want this or I don't want this based on if I perceive that it's working for me right now. I know we treat the Bible like that. One of, the, one of the most common issues that our biblical counselors that we've trained run into when they're doing biblical counseling, as I coach them a little bit, one of the issues they always run into is they give some biblical advice and the person that they're counseling always comes back with, I tried that and it didn't work. And I always say, slow down. We, we use all these terms without defining them. First, define tried and second, define worked. If by tried that, you mean that you did it for 13 days and then got bored with it, you didn't try it. And really, we have to define worked. That didn't work. 
If by that didn't work, you mean uh, that didn't make me feel the way I wanted to feel? You're right, it didn't work. But biblically, we define that worked by that made me walk in the way that God commanded me to walk. That's what it means for something to work. But in our individualistic pragmatism, we don't see things that way. Individualism, pragmatism, and of course, third, emotionalism. I tried that, but I didn't feel it. I tried to read that book of the Bible, but it just didn't feel like, like it just didn't seem good to me. And I, I can't really get into it unless I really feel it. I'm, I can't really go to church unless the, the right music is being played. And we just have this sort of emotionalism where we judge it based on how it immediately makes us feel. I think emotionalism and pragmatism and individualism all keep us from recognizing the law of liberty and its place over us and in us and underneath us as we walk. And so I want to talk about the law of liberty and answer a couple of questions about the law of God and the life of the Christian. This morning from James chapter 2. He says in James chapter 2, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does this paragraph call this book, the Bible. Well, in verse 8, it calls it the royal law. In verse 8, it calls it the scripture, tasgraphas. In verse 9, it just simply calls it the law. In verse 11, curiously, in verse 11, we have not a title for the law so much as a description of where it came from. It's, uh, the law is referred to as he who said. And then finally in verse 12, it's called the law of liberty. That's what this paragraph calls the Bible. Next question, what does the Bible do according to this paragraph? Well, according to verse 8, it can really be fulfilled. According to verse 9, it can convict you as a transgressor of it. According to verse 10, it can be kept, whoever keeps the whole law, or it can be failed to be kept. And finally, according to verse 12, it can and it most certainly will judge you. That's what the Bible will do. What does it mean when it says there in verse 9, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor? And then he says in verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. If he, said, he who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. He's speaking about discrimination or partiality, judging people and treating people based on external worldly factors, 
And it's saying that if we do that, we are disobeying the law of God just as if we disobeyed the commandment, do not murder or do not commit adultery. And it's emphasizing there that God's commands are not bits and pieces that you can collect and then discard, but it's the whole thing. This song with this particular title topped to the charts for 21 weeks in the year 1943. So I guess that excludes our high school ministry from knowing what song this is. But some of you were getting your absolute groove on in 1943, and you will remember this song. All or nothing at all. Frank Sinatra said, if it's love, there ain't no in-between. It's all or nothing at all. James says, when it comes to the law, it's all or nothing at all. The law is indivisible. The law is not a pile of rocks that we can take one out of it. The law is one sheet of glass. You could take one rock out of the pile of rocks and it still looks about the same. But if you do anything to that sheet of glass whereby you would crack it, the whole thing falls apart. Many of us have been taught, I, I have taught many of you this that we look at the Old Testament like the moral law, the civil law, the sacrificial law. That's maybe helpful Bible teaching, but it's not specifically the way the Bible views itself. Here, James says the whole law is one indivisible unity. And the argument of verse 11, the critical part of the argument, when he says the law is one indivisible unity, the critical part of the argument, I think, is actually in that little phrase, verse 11, for he who said. The law is not a text that you can delete and edit and change. The law is the spoken heart message from the God who created us and loves us. We don't have the right to edit it. Note the grammar of verse 11. He who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't murder. And so if you take one and not the other, if we walk up to the menu and say, uh, give me uh, one of those, but not one of those, this is not how we treat the law of God. As if you would say to someone, I love you so much, but I'm going to ignore every third word that comes out of your mouth. I, I love you so much. I want to go out on a romantic date with you, but half the time that you're talking, I'm going to put my fingers in my ears. If the law is someone who loves us speaking to us, then we listen to the whole thing. This means... That obedience to the word of God is not some sort of philosophical, ethical decision. It means that obedience to the word of God is not some sort of scientific formula to a successful life. It means that obedience to the law of God is personal loyalty to the God whose word it is. It's a personal issue of love. Individualism, 
pragmatism, emotionalism. I will grant you that what our world means by love usually is individualistic, emotionalistic, and pragmatic. But what God means by agape love is the utter antithesis of pragmatism, emotionalism, and individualism. And that's what he's getting at. So as we look at the law, it is the case that aspects of what we could call the ceremonial law are set aside clearly in the New Testament. You're going to get to it in Acts as you go through in your ABFs. What does it mean that we have the law and that we keep the law? And how do we understand law and grace or law and salvation? The best place to go is the first place that the law was delivered. That's why I'd ask you to turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. What about law and salvation? What about law and grace? Is it right to say that Christians are under the law? Doesn't it say in somewhere in the book of Romans that we're not under the law, but we're under grace? Answer, yes, it says that. But does James say here that we are under the law of liberty and will be judged by the law of liberty? Yes, he does. Well, how do we put all that together? Is it right to say that Christians are under the law or not? Didn't Jesus fulfill the law for us and redeem us from the curse of the law? Yes, he did. So how do we understand how the law is to operate in our lives? The best spot is actually where the law was first revealed in Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. Remember, James 2.11, he who said, he who said, this is personal speaking. It's an issue of personal loyalty. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor shall you covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and they asked Moses to basically be a mediator for them. And they saw the holy law of God. So how does this work? What 
How do the Ten Commandments function? Should the Ten Commandments be hanging in the Supreme Court of the United States of America? How do, how do the Ten Commandments function for a nation and for a people? Well, our founders, I mean the founders of the United States of America, use the language of endowed by our creator, and they use the language of uh, like self-evident truths. What about this little quote from Alexander Hamilton? You know Alexander Hamilton? I am not throwing away my shot, that guy. This is what he said. The law, meaning the Ten Commandments, the law, the Ten Commandments, spoken by God himself, is, of course, superior to any other law. And it is binding over all countries at all times. No human laws are of any validity if contrary to this, is what he said. Strange, I don't remember that making its way into the musical. That would have been a good hip-hop song. But... The Ten Commandments, what Alexander Hamilton's saying there is basically what I would agree with. The Ten Commandments are our nation or any other nation or group or church or assembly needs a foundation for its decisions, and it also needs a roof for its decisions. In other words, we can't just make up what's right and wrong, there needs to be a foundation that reveals to us what is right and wrong. And also, we need a roof in the sense that there's a moral order over the decisions that we make. In other words, the dictates of a court or a legislature or an elder board or whatever group of authority we're talking about, that human authority has a higher authority over it Otherwise, right, otherwise, you end up with tyranny in that it's impossible to question or to criticize the authority and the rulers. But we know from the word of God that there does come a time when we say we cannot obey the law of man because we must obey the law of God. The law of God is a foundation and a roof over anything and everything else that we decide. Certain acts can never be right, even if the country that you're living in says they are legal. And certain acts can never be wrong, even if those in human authority over you say that they're wrong. These these moral truths transcend geography, history, and time. But when we receive the Ten Commandments, how are we to understand our relationship to God and obeying the law? The best way to understand law and grace, or at least for for my mind and heart, the way that it locked in for me years ago when I really wrestled with this, was to to get the story and the run-up from Exodus 1 on through Exodus 20. You know, the, I, maybe you know the, the story, or at least the highlights of it. I'm not going to read it, read the whole thing to you. But when Exodus opens, the people of God are enslaved. And they are working so hard, and their backs are breaking, and their wrists are raw from the chains. And their overlords say, you guys, 
aren't working hard enough, you're an annoying bunch of people, and so then their overlords say to them, well, we used to provide you these piles of straw that you could make bricks with. Now, we're not going to give you that straw anymore. You still have to make the exact same number of bricks, but you have to go out and find the straw and pile it up for yourself. Have, have you ever worked for a boss who basically when, that, when he or she told you what you had to do for the day, you were like, you are insane. No human person can complete that. This, you have a little glimpse of what it was like to be them. And so then in Exodus 6, we find these words. I am the Lord your God. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you. I'll give you liberty, he says. I'll give you liberty from your slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. Relational, him who spoke. I will take you to be my people, he says. And I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Exodus 6, 6, 7, and 8. Then in Exodus 7, Moses stands up before the Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And then we have the plagues. The final plague being the Passover the, the, in Exodus 12. And then we have the the. the Deliverance from the Red Sea in Exodus 14. We have the manna and the water from the rock. All of that happens. And then finally, 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 in Exodus 20, God gives them the law. And then God says, we read it in Exodus 20, verse 1 and 2, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you see from the very narrative of Exodus that God's people were not under a mandate to obey the law of God as the means of their salvation? The people of God, even in the Exodus, were redeemed by God's unilateral, sovereign grace and mercy unto them. And then once they had been redeemed, once the blood of the lamb had been shed and they had been redeemed, then God said to them, I am the Lord your God who redeemed you. This is my word for you for the way that you should walk now that you are my people. We aren't under the law as a means of salvation. Neither was Israel to whom the law actually belonged civilly, dispensationally, when it was revealed. But we are under the law as the way of blessing as those who are God's people. It's essentially the same as Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of your works, he says in verse 9. Not of your works, lest anyone should boast. And then in verse 10, he says, you are God's work, and God has ordained good works that you should walk in them. The grace, not of works. We're not under the law as a means of salvation. But once that grace has saved us, then these good works are a work of glory, a work of joy, a work of gratitude, the way to walk in God's blessing. 
That's a way to understand the law and salvation or the law and grace. If Exodus 20 is the best spot to go in the Old Testament, for my money, the best spot to go in the New Testament is John chapter 14. Because here we can ask the question, what about law and liberty? What about law and love? If we think law and hard stone requirement, if we think law as in there's not an affection and a care in the law, it's just a legislative directive, John 14 will show us about law and liberty, and it'll show us about law and love. I want to read from John 14, verses 15, down through verse 24. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I'm in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not the bad one, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Four times in this small paragraph, four times, Jesus cements law-keeping with love. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And verse 24, negatively, whoever does not love me does not keep my word. Four times, Jesus links law with love. One way to understand this is to dial in, admittedly, you all know I'm a grammar geek, on the, the voice of the verb in verse 15 when he says, you will. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Is that a, is that a, a hard imperative? You must do this? Or is that a future tense promise? You will do this or you shall do this. Is that a legal imperative in joining us to un- aided human effort or is that a divine promise that contains the divine provision for its fulfillment 
And if we look at verse 15 and roll it into verse 16, we see the answer. If you love me, you will keep my commandments because I'll ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you to help you fulfill my commandments. It's the very opposite of a legal imperative of unaided human effort. It's a divine promise of divine enablement for what you will now be enabled to do. He's not saying, do this or else I'm not going to love you. He's saying, I've loved you. And because I've loved you and my love has found a home in you, my very spirit will now dwell in you. And that is how you will show your love for me because you will have a new, divinely inaugurated ability to follow my law out of love, out of love, out of love. This is why Christian life is fruit-bearing, is never fruit-stapling, right? Even, even if you don't have an artificial Christmas tree, which I have proudly, made in China, whatever, even if you have a real Christmas tree, it ain't growing any fruit. If I come to your house at Christmas and there are ceramic puppies and purple elves on your Christmas tree, they did not grow on that tree. They were stapled or placed or tied or hung upon that tree. In the Christian life, what would it mean if Jesus said, I did everything I could for you, but you, you, you all better clean up your act and I ain't gonna help you do it. We would have to run around and try to staple fruit onto our lives. But Jesus says, I have loved you so much that now by my spirit, I am in you. And so the life that you live now will look more and more like me, but you will become more and more your authentic self because you will be freed from the old ways that kept you from being who in God you were meant to be. What Jesus is talking about here is that he will produce fruit inside of us. That's what he's saying in verse 18. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I myself will come to you. That's what he's saying in verse 20. In that day, you will know that I'm in my Father and you in me and I in you. He is tying that night not so tightly. And that's what he means in verse 23 when he says, if you love me and keep my word and my Father loves you and we will come and make our home in you. It is that God, the Holy Spirit, now dwells within us. That's why we obey the law of God. It's not that we do so in mere human discipline. This is the big difference between the you must of raw, unaided human imperative and you will of divine promise and enablement. Does it require human self-control and human discipline? Of course it does. The Bible's not teaching some magic zap. The Bible commands you to repent, commands you to, to put aside the deeds of iniquity. Of course, it involves your will. But it is the Holy Spirit that gives you the capacity even to use your will in the ways that God calls you to use it. 
Being a Christian means this relationship with Christ where he changes us from the inside out. That's why the law for the Christian is a law of love and a law of liberty. Remember when Jesus said in uh, 10 chapters earlier in John 4, if anybody drinks of that old well, they're going to get thirsty again. But if anyone drinks of the water that I shall give him, Jesus says, that water will become in her. That water will become in him a fountain of water for which they will never thirst again. Just about four chapters in front of this chapter, Jesus said a similar statement when he said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is why, if you could just get this, the next time you see me hollering up here from this pulpit that you need to repent of your sin and start obeying the Bible, you are not hearing me sort of schoolmarm, moral hectoring you to do stuff. What I am saying is, in the promise of the gospel, would you please become who you are? Who you are in Christ. The Christian life is a steady, incremental process of becoming who we are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have in your deepest soul a well of water that continues to spring up. And so the next time, or whatever, our budget drops and I have to say, you know, hey, we, we got to give our money faithfully. I'm, I'm not twisting, I'm not meaning to twist your arm to do something you don't want to do. The fact of the gospel is because Jesus now lives in you, you are a giver. That's who you are. That's who you are. Because the Father and the Son have made their abode in you and there's no giver like the Father and no giver like the Son and they now dwell in you. So I am, I, I am urging you and even commanding you to become who you are in Jesus Christ. That's why it's the law of love. And oh, that's also why it's the law of liberty. Because you don't want to be who you are without Jesus. All you are is enslaved to yourself. And if you're not sick of that yet, it's because you're more deluded than I can possibly delude you out of. But when the Spirit sends the convicting work of the law of God, you'll see, I don't ever want to be who I was without Jesus in me. So let me share with you uh, three, three ways you can take in the law of love. Question, who here feels great about the, the amount of time and heart attention that they give to the Bible. If you feel great about the amount of time and heart attention that you give to the Bible, you can tune out. But I don't think anybody ought to tune out, including the person who's speaking. These are three ideas of ways to make a change if you don't feel great about the amount of time and heart affection that you've given to the Bible. And it's very simple, mind, heart, mouth. Number one, your mind. Take the Bible in to your mind. That means learn 
Learn. Learn. We, uh, Darren right now is teaching a Firm Foundations course that it goes online once a week, but the past ones that he has taught are already online. You can, you can get our, the sermons from Hebrews from this church or from my teaching. There's a lot of other great Bible teaching if you learn by listening to sermons. So many good books. We have a church library. You don't even have to buy it. You can just copy. You can just uh, take it and maybe bring it back, maybe not. That's between you and the devil, but just take the book and see what happens. But there, there are so many good Christian resources. Amy and I read a Christian book together every night. We just finished a tiny little book called Christ and Calamity by Harold Sankbell, a wonderful little book. You could, read it, you could read it in 10 days, and it's about what to trust in when everything falls apart in your life. The next one we're working on is a, actually a historical theological study of the, the Apostles' Creed. You know, there's so many good Christian books you could dive into and learn from. So with your mind, learn. Second, your heart. Don't let it stay in your mind. Hide it in your heart. By this, I mean scripture memory. My, my resolution, I, I realize I'm a bad enough person that making New Year's resolutions doesn't count. So <laughs> this year, I've made resolutions uh, four times. I made them in January, but then I made them again three months later and again three months later and again three months later. And my resolution for September was script, well, it was two. One was I wanted to pray through the membership directory aggressively so that I could get to, through it at least two times between September and December. And so yesterday I did P, Q, and R. There were no Qs. If your name's here and if you're here and your last name begins with Q, you're not in the directory that I have yet, so you're unprayed for. Sorry, but I did all the P. There were a lot of P's and a lot of R's. But I, so my two resolutions were pray through the membership directory, and then my second resolution was to memorize, and I picked, because it's 2020, I picked verses about zeal in ministry because I don't think I've ever had a year where I felt as much like I'm just treading water and maintaining things. And I want to move. I want to advance. I want to take new ground. So I'm memorizing these verses about zeal. But anyway, by heart, I mean, take, take the Bible in to your heart. Memorize it. Memorize it. And you, it'll, you'll be amazed what a difference it makes. And then thirdly is the mouth. And by that, I mean talk about the Bible with others. That's all I mean. There's great joy in talking about Scripture with others. Use your mouth to foretell, to foretell the beauties of the law of God. Get into an adult Bible fellowship. And if your adult Bible fellowship, uh, what you get on Sunday is great, but if you're like, oh, I want to do this another time in the week, get a small group together out of your adult Bible fellowship. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't, it, does, it could just be three friends from there, but get together. I was just talking last week with one of our elders who, who was sharing with me the joy of simply doing this. He asked a man, will you read these two chapters from, I think it was the book of Acts, and I'll read the same two chapters, and then we'll get together and we'll talk about them. It was that simple. But so much good happens when we get into the word of God by speaking it to one another, your mind, your heart, and your mouth. If you feel great about the amount of time and the amount of heart concern you've given to the Bible, then you don't have to take those steps, but I'm sure everybody here feels, I want to take those steps. You know the best time? When you know a step that you ought to take, you know the best time to make a change in your life? The best time to make a change in your life is several years ago. Because then today, you could be enjoying the blessing and the fruit of that change. 
You know the second best time to make a change in your life? Is today. Because today will be several years ago before you know it. Before you know it. So don't put it off. Take these steps in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you do, remember that the law of God is the expression of the reality of the heart of God. And what it means to be born again is to have the Spirit of God take up residence in your heart so that as you receive the law of God and you walk in the law of God, you are becoming your true self, liberated from all that holds you back and walking in the blessing of believing. Let's pray. Only in you, Christ, only in you can we receive this admonition and only in you, Christ, can we carry it out. It's not in us unaided in our human discipline and strength, but by the promise of your spirit, we now ask you to do in us what you have promised to do in us so that we might walk in liberty and walk in love. Lord Jesus, hear your children as they pray. And what we know not, teach us. And what we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. That you might be glorified in our lives. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.